Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Last time, we considered Jesus' identity as God's Messiah. Today, we'll look at a number of texts that are sometimes misunderstood to teach that Jesus is actually God. We'll go through three classifications of verses. One, those with manuscript issues. Two, those with translation issues. And three, those with interpretation issues. Here now is Theology Part 11, Challenging Jesus' Humanity. On the, the first piece of paper I gave you today, I want you to pull that out because that's where I state the doctrine simply and give you the supporting text. You got it there, Daniel? Mm-hmm. All right, can you read that? Jesus is God's human Messiah, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. All right, so that's just the simple doctrinal statement. And then you have a lot of verses here. Uh, these verses... Many of them just teach that God is one, right? Uh, some of them do talk about the Messiah, like 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Jesus Christ, himself a human. <laughs> That's the uh, New American Bible translation I was quoting, the, uh, the Catholic Bible, which is just so fun to quote on that verse. I want to read to you a quote by Christopher Kaiser. He says, Belief in the deity of Christ has traditionally been the keystone of the doctrine of the Trinity. Yet, explicit references to Jesus as God in the New Testament are very few, and even those few are generally plagued with uncertainties of either text or interpretation. So this is somebody who believes in the Trinity, and he's saying, look, the Trinity depends on the deity of Christ. That's the idea that Jesus is God. And the, there are not very many verses to go to on that. And the very few that there are, are what he says, plagued with uncertainties of text or interpretation. So that's what we're going to see. William Barclay, author of Jesus as They Saw Him, he says the following, But we shall find that on almost every occasion in the New Testament on which Jesus seems to be called God, there is a problem, either of textual criticism or of translation. In almost every case, we have to discuss which of the two readings is to be accepted or which of the two possible translations to be accepted. This is somebody who believes Jesus is God, and he's saying, look, this is difficult for us because of all the translation issues. I'm going to look at, to start, two uh, manuscript issue passages, and then we'll go into a number of translation issue passages, and then some interpretation. So those are the three categories. You have manuscript passages, translation passages, and interpretation passages. So you want to group whatever I say in the next hour or so into one of those three categories. And we're just going to go one after the other. Manuscript, translation, and then interpretation. And what that means will become clear as we get to each. But manuscript uh, text, uh, translation text, and then interpretation text. All right, so the two texts under uh, manuscript 
are 1 Timothy 3.16 and uh, 1 John 5.7-8. Is uh, John like one eighteen in there? Okay, that's <clears throat> it's funny you bring that up already. I struggled to figure out where to put that one in. I decided to put it in the next unit. So yeah, we're going to get to John 1.18. You're right, it is a manuscript issue. But in that case, I take the position that I think it's legit. So, <laughs> so I want to handle it in the authentic text that say Jesus is God, being a third of the three. But right now, <clears throat> and that's up for debate, but... You know, I'm like 51% sure. Okay, so the first one up is 1 Timothy 3.16, which in the New King James says the following. Did we get to Katie Beth? Did you read already? Could you read the screen, please? And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed in the world, and received up in glory. All right, so the difficulty here is that it says God was manifested in the flesh in 1 Timothy 3.16. And if you look at any modern translation, anything done within the last hundred years other than the New King James, maybe that was an overstatement, but 90-something percent of translations, they're going to say he was manifested in the flesh or something similar to that. Here, I'll show, I'll show them to you. Here's the Holman. It says, he was manifested. ESV, he was manifested. King James, God was manifest in the flesh. New American Bible, who was manifest in the flesh. New American Standard, he who was manifest in the flesh. That's both versions of that. NET, he was, he was revealed in the flesh. NIV, look, even the NIV gets it right. <laughs> he appeared in the flesh. I mean, that's, hallelujah, that's a miracle by itself. Uh, but then once again, the King James, God was man. So what's going on here? I, uh, we we kind of looked at this a little bit last time. So this is going to be pretty quick for us. I did the manuscript uh, research sort of like accidentally earlier. But if you look at this manuscript here, this is Codex Sinaiticus, which is one of the most important manuscripts we have around. You can see over here that OC, that's the word OS which means who or he who, okay? It's a relative pronoun. And right above it, you have this scribal edition, which looks like a theta right here, theta, and then a sigma right after it, a lunate sigma. So this is actually how you would write out the word theos, which is the word for God, above it. I'll show it to you in a clearer manuscript in a minute. But just so you know, this main text here, of Codex uh, Sinaiticus comes from the 4th century, whereas this edition above it, according to Bruce Mesker, is dated to the 12th century. So 12 minus 4, 8 centuries later, a scribe came in and put a little theos up above it as a correction. And this is, this is not necessarily nefarious. I mean, this person probably thought it should have been that. At some point, it was injected in there. Uh, so here's, here's another one for you to see. Okay, Th this is uh, somewhat of a tarnished manuscript, but this is the part in question here. There's a, uh, a theta here and a sigma. Zeta, eta, theta. So we call it a theta in modern Greek. I should be consistent with myself. There's a theta <laughs> and a sigma here, 
And uh, the reason why we know that is because the bar above it, okay? So now uh, in Greek manuscripts, they usually don't write out the word theos because like hap is all over the place. They call it a nomina sacra. If you ever heard that expression before, it means sacred name. So what they do is they'll just take the first letter and the last letter and then they'll put a bar on top and that means God. It's a word for God. And for Jesus, which is Jesus, what they'll do is they'll just write it like this with a bar on top. So uh, with sacred names, with like God or Jesus or Lord, Kyrios, this is how they write Kyrios. And there might be some other ones too. And different, different scribes have different rules, but what is the scribe trying to do? They're trying to save space and the manuscripts are very expensive to make, so you want try to save as much space as you can. They don't put spaces between words, they have everything very neat, so they don't waste space. Now, here's what's interesting. The word for who, or he who, looks like this. And so the difference between these two, really, is just this line in the middle, and then whether or not it has the bar on top. Now, let's say early on they weren't doing the bars on top, they were just doing that, you can see very easily how a scribe could be like, yeah, Theos. But it's really not saying Theos, it's saying Os. You, you can barely see it in this manuscript, which is kind of tragic. But uh, this is from the 5th century. The one I showed you before was from the 4th century. So in the 4th century, we have Os. In the 5th century, we have Theos. So who became God? And then it crept its way into the various tra translations. I should also mention to you, if you want to do textual criticism, which is where you look at different manuscripts, other than paying 350 bucks for Bible works, probably the, the number one easiest place for you to get insight is to just uh, look at the NET, the New English Translation, which is available for free online at bible.org. And you can access, there are over 60,000 translators' footnotes on there, and they'll tell you the inside scoop on any of these textual issues and tell you all the different options and like what scholars say. If you want to get more technical, especially if you have some Greek skills, because NET is more just like limited to English, uh, then you definitely want to get uh, Bruce Metzger's textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. I'm not going to write New Testament, it's too many letters. Uh, textual commentary, we call it the TCGNT. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. <laughs> And uh, so that's, that's a very good book. And what Bruce and the committee do is they go through all the uh, questionable passages in the New Testament where manuscripts differ in a significant way. They give it a rating, a grade, like A, B, C, D, or F. Actually, I don't think they have F. I think it's just A, B, C, or D. So A means that they're certain that the reading they picked is correct. B means they're fairly certain. C means they're not really sure. D means they have no idea. Like, we just picked this one, because, but it could have been one of these other ones. And then they'll give you the reasons why. Okay, so let me show you, since BibleWorks, I somehow have the module for this in here. I don't think it comes with BibleWorks anymore, but when I got it, it did, I guess. So I've got Mesker's textual commentary of the Greek New Testament here. And uh, this is the elect. I have the print version as well, which I had before I realized it was already in here. Okay, so 1 Timothy 3.16, they say os on the top there, and they give it an A rating, which means they're absolutely certain. The reading which on the basis of external evidence and transcriptional probability best explains the rise of the others is os. It is supported by the earliest and best unseals. 
That first one, that Aleph, is Sinaiticus. It's the picture I showed you to start with, where it was correct, and then above it, it had the difference. And then A uh, is the uh, Alexandrinus, and then C, I think, is probably Vaticanus. I don't know what G is. As well as these other, one, these other manuscripts. And then, and then it goes on, and he explains you know, more about it. And you see there is the Os and the Theos, He's, you know, so this book right here is really the inside scoop that scholars use when they're trying to figure out what's going on between manuscripts, okay? And then the translators, what they end up using is what's called a critical text, all right? So you've got, this is, this is something I kind of cover in apologetics, but you have like 5,000 Greek manuscripts, and then you, the textual critics, they analyze them, and they come up with one Greek text, and this is called a critical text. And then from that, you have all these different translations. So you have your like NASB, they're looking at the critical text. Nobody's gonna go to a museum and look, look at an old piece of paper. We're just trusting that the people who generated the critical text did a good job. And this is a commentary on the critical text. And it tells you why they decided to make the critical text be what it is. And anything they're uncertain about, they tell you, which is really great. And the critical text is, uh, there, are two there are two different ones, but they're pretty much the same. Is the United Bible Societies or the Nestle Aland. I think they're on the 28th edition of that and like five over here. But uh, that's probably way more than you wanted to know. So, sorry. On to the next one. So, simply put, 1 Timothy 3.16, should anyone ever bring it up to you, it would only be a King James only person that would bring it up to you. You would say, look, there's a manuscript difference. One scribe changed the os into a theos, and it's been corrected in all modern translations. All right, on to 1 John 5, 7, and 8. Again, this is something that would only really come up with a King James only type person, but uh, it's instructive. It's instructive. It's part of the history. It's like we're witnessing a crime scene here, right? In the first crime scene, somebody put that dastardly bar into the middle of that Omicron, and it created God out of who, <laughs> right? In the second one, they did much worse. This is much, much more heinous. So first, let me just show you the difference. You have this handout. All right, so on the King James side there, it says King James 1611. Uh, it says, for there, this is probably the 1769 if we're going to be honest, but anyhow. For there are three that bear record. No, that is 1611. Look at that. I did use the 1611. So it's the actual uh, Old English. Look at that. Just when you start to doubt yourself. But there are three that bear record in Heowin. He Just kidding. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness, see, on earth. In earth, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree on one. Now, if you look at the English Standard Version, across from it, it just says, for there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Is that a significant difference? <laughs> <laughs> one blatantly and explicitly teaches a form of the Trinity doctrine, and on the other side is talking about just like spirit, water, and blood, which is not even the same kind of subject. And then you look at, in a German translation, you have Luther's translation from 1545, uh, and then you have the you know, 20th century German translation. You can see the, the same difference between the two. 
So what in the world happened? Well, I tell you the whole story in this paper. If you want to read it sometime, uh, if this interests you, feel free. And uh, here, here's what's interesting about it. Oh, I got really thorough in this thing. Uh, look at uh, page seven. Look at the bottom there. It says Greek manuscripts containing the comma. The comma Johannium is that extra part that's not in our modern translations. What did you call the comma? Johannium. The comma of John. John's comma. And it, the comma, I forget what that means in Latin. It's something to do with like a phrase. Like commas separate phrases, right? So it's a, a, a technical term. I, I didn't make any of this stuff up. This is like what people call it. All right, so Greek manuscripts containing the comma in their main text. Uh, so these are all of the Greek manuscripts on the front and back here that have that extra part. You can see that they all date very late. 14th or 15th century, 16th century, 16th century, 18th century. There's one from the 10th century, but it's actually in the margin of that text. A later scribe wrote it in in the 15th or 16th century. So that is to say that there is no Greek manuscript before it was tampered with, at least, in the 14th or 15th century, somewhere around 14th or 15th century. There's no manuscript before that that contained this Greek formula about the Trinity. It comes in later. And then, once it comes into the Greek text, it gets translated into the uh, German and the English, which are the two main, you know, dominating translations, Luther's German and then the King James English. It's in both of those. But there's, and there's a whole story behind how that happened, and it's in this paper if you want to read it. But I'm not going to put this in the translation if you can find it, because I've got it Right, right. Well, that was Erasmus when he was doing his Greek New Testament, which I actually have that in here. I, I found a, uh, a copy of it, of Erasmus's Greek New Testament online. It's like really exciting. Anyhow, page five, you can look at his, uh, his Greek New Testament there in uh, the year 1519. It says, to prevma ke to idor ke to ema ke i Tris ito and isin. Okay, so on the right side we have a translation for there are three who testify: the spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Fifteen nineteen, Erasmus did not have it in there. And then you look at fifteen twenty two. Now you've got patir logos ke prevma ayu, which is Father, Word, Spirit, Holy. Okay, so between the fifteen nineteen version and the fifteen twenty two version of the Greek, what we would call a critical text. This was the first of all the critical texts, is Erasmus. He inserts it in there. And that's because the powers that be got to him, and they said, you have to put this Trinity formula in your Greek Bible. And Erasmus said, well, I don't have any manuscripts with that formula in there, so I'm not going to put it in unless you show me a manuscript. So they manufactured one and handed it to him. And he said, here's a manuscript. And so he put it in. <laughs> so his solution was the manuscript. His solution was to change the Bible. What do you think about that? That's not the solution. You, sh you shouldn't be changing the Bible. Let the Bible change you. Don't change the Bible. That's what I say. So look at the conclusion there on page 8. Dan, can you read that for us? Wall? Today, the comma Johannium in only the King James Version and the New King James Version. The smattering of other outdated translations. Any smattering of other outdated translations. 
mainstream Bible, like the new New Jerusalem Bible. New Jerusalem Bible is a Catholic Bible. Pretty pretty good too. More of a paraphrase, but pretty good. Etc. have eliminated the forgery. In other words, Catholics and Protestants both admit that Nakama should not be considered legitimate scripture. But then this brings us to a radical paradoxical conclusion. If the most Trinitarian verse in the Bible is a counterfeit, does this not indict that someone, somewhere along the line, thought the scriptures needed help teaching the cherished dogma? If we accept um, Menzer's uh, more benign theory for the origin of the comma, we are still left with the simple fact that every single Greek manuscript testified to its falsity until the 15th and 16th centuries when marginal notes were added to four old manuscripts, and new ones were turned out to validate the erroneous Latin reading. This is besides the fact that the early Latin manuscripts likewise omitted the text in both the Old Latin and Jerome Vulgate. When I consider the audacity and the humorous involved in fabricating and forcibly inserting a counterfeit verse in the scripture, I can't help but ask why. If the Bible, the Bible already clearly taught <laughs> the Trinity, why would anyone go through the effort to tamper with it? To me, such an act is plainly an indication that the Bible does not teach the Trinity after all. If the Bible already Latin. Right. If the Bible already taught the Trinity, why would anybody ever insert a verse teaching the Trinity if it was already there? Right? It, somebody thought the Bible needed help teaching this, so they made it up and they put it in. And thankfully, it's now been taken out and... You know, that's, that's a good thing. My point about this text, because most people you talk to are not going to know about this, because it's not in most Bibles. It's only in the old English Bibles. However, this, my friends, is a smoking gun. And it's to our advantage to bring this verse up in conversation, because we can say to somebody, did you know that somebody invented a statement about the Trinity and put it into the Bible, and it was in there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then, event, and then later on, the scholars realized, oh, this is a forgery, and they took it out. Why do you think somebody would put that in there? If the Bible's so Trinitarian, why, you know, why does it need help? <laughs> right? So I think it's actually a strong point on our side to show that the Bible's not Trinitarian, otherwise it wouldn't, people wouldn't be trying to help it be Trinitarian. It's awesome. I never viewed it as... A supporting evidence on our side. Yeah. Someone yeah. there. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult text, but I think it's actually a, a difficult text that we should bring up. Yeah. Because it's one of these that everyone has uh, recognized. All right. Now we're going to look at translational issues. And the, uh, the first up to bat on that one. So these two were, were manuscript ones. Now we're going to get into translation ones. We have Acts 20, 28, Romans 9, 5, Titus 2, 13, 2 Peter 1, 1. A lot of these are very similar. Okay, so uh, first up is Acts 20, 28. Okay, what I'm passing to you now is a long article. 
And uh, you can see there's a table of contents on the front. Does it have Acts 20, 28 listed in there? No. It's, it's in the appendix. All right, so everybody go to page 14 in there. This will be an easier way to, to cruise through a bunch quickly rather than uh, slowly. <laughs> it's, all about, it's all about quickness in this class, you know? It's just like there's so much to, to cover on, on any given subject. Uh, wait till we talk about sexism and slavery and uh, violence and all this other fun stuff. Since we have the second class, yeah. how do King James only people um, justify any of that? Uh, the, King, the King James, how do they justify being King James only? That plus in light of this. Like, how can you... I don't know how they would justify that. Isn't that, that hurts my brain, like, that you could say, well, it's King James only, meanwhile there's a clear forgery in it. I, I would say a more sophisticated King James only person would admit the forgery. And they would say that, because um, really sophisticated King James only people aren't really King James only people. They're really Byzantine text people. There, so there, scripts that were used for the right, right. So there are like families of manuscripts. So there's the Western text, Byzantine text, the Alexandrian text, and modern scholars put a lot of weight on the Alexandrian because it's the oldest. Mm. But it wasn't around for a long time. Like we just didn't have access to it. So when the King James and a lot of these other translations came out, it was based on the Byzantine text, which was the text of the uh, Church of the East, which you may or may not know a lot about. Um, if you took church history one, so that's like the main family that the King James was translated from. And I'm sure the, that text would not have the comma in it because it's, it's, it's before the 15th century. The Byzantine Empire died in uh, 1453, I think it was. Their manuscripts are older than that. All right, so what I do is I provide for you two translations there. One. Uh, that translates it one way, one that translates it another way. Since these are translation issue texts, I want you to see clearly the translation difference. So the NASB on top for Acts 20, 28 says, Be on guard for yourselves for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Versus the NRSV, Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own Son. Significant difference. The first one, the NASB, you could take it as God's own blood. Right? The Church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, capitalized his, so it's like God has blood. This uh, translation implicitly assumes that Jesus is God. And then we're talking about the God Jesus here. Because Jesus has blood, right? So, and then the NRSV, which is a very scholarly translation, throws the word son in there. Now, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, there is no word son in the Greek. There is no word son in the Greek. But let's read Raymond Brown and what he says. He's a really smart uh, Catholic guy. Grammatically, and he believes in the Trinity, so this should be interesting. Grammatically, the reading raises the possibility that the passage is referring to Jesus as God who obtained the church with his own blood. However, there is another possibility. Perhaps God refers to the Father, and his own refers to the Son. Thus, the Church of God, the Father, which he obtained with the blood of his own, in parentheses, Son. Many favor this interpretation, or an alternative, the Church of God, which he, Christ, obtained with his own blood, position, positing an unexpressed change of subject. And so, even if we read the Church of God, we are by no means certain that this verse calls Jesus God. 
And this is by somebody who believes Jesus is God. I think just about every case here, I, I always did that because it was it's more fun to uh, have what we call a hostile witness. Uh, so, so that's a translation issue. There are two options. You can take it two different ways. It's not going to settle a debate. But if somebody brings it up to you, you can say, well, hey, this is a translation issue. The NRSV goes a different way with it. The New Revised Standard Version is a very reputable, scholarly, fairly recent translation. So the best you can do is say, it's not a slam dunk. So like well, I mean, it's just like you could translate it one way or you could translate it another way, depending on if you think Jesus is God or not going into it. It's really based on your, your understanding of that. The translation is based on your understanding of theology rather than the other way around. Is the context before or after it not clarify as to whether it's God or Jesus? No, I mean, I could tell you the context. I mean, this is Paul. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. He's about to leave. It's very tearful. He's at Miletus, and he's saying to them, be on guard, watch over the flock. I mean, he's not, there's not like a whole run-up yeah. that would clarify what's going on, which is why it's a, a difficult verse. Let's look at the next one, Romans 9, 5, which is on page 12. Stefan, could you read that NET there? And then the RSV? To the patriarchs, and from them by human descent came the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. All right, Elliot, could you read the RSV to them? Then belong the patriarchs and to the arrays. According to the flesh is the Christ, God is forever, amen. You see the difference? Do you think that difference is significant? <laughs> it looks like a huge difference to me. There's actually one more. All right, so the first one says Christ who is God over all, and then comma, blessed. That's the NET. Then you have the, uh, the RSV made a new sentence. There's also one other way to do it. The NASB has another way to do it. It's, it says, God blessed. So there's really three ways to do it. From whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. So that's the third way. So one, it says, Christ is God overall blessed. Another one says, it ends it, and then they say, God, who is overall be blessed. And then this one is kind of like in between, where it's like, Christ is God blessed. Which could either mean that He's God, or that he's blessed by God. You know what I mean? Uh, you could take it different ways. Kyle, can you read that for us? Yeah. Romans 9.5 is disputed. After Paul has expounded the position of Israel in salvation history and has emphasized as an especial advantage the fact that Christ, according to the flesh, stems from this people, he adds a relative clause which runs lit, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Even so, Christ would not be equated absolutely with God, but only described as a being of divine nature. For the word theos has no article. But this description of majesty does not occur anywhere else in Paul. The much more probable explanation is that the statement is a doxology directed to God, stemming from Jewish tradition and adopted by Paul. Overwhelmed by God's dealings with Israel, Paul concludes with an inscription of praise to God. The translation would then read, The one who is God over all, be blessed forever. Amen. Or alternatively, God who is over all, be blessed forever. Amen. Okay, any thoughts on that? So, he's saying, at best, it's saying that Jesus might be fine. Right. In some sense. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, he uses pretty ambiguous language, divine nature, mm -hmm. and that, but... 
let me give you a little more modern take on it. So uh, this is the NAB, the New American Bibles, a standard Catholic Bible used around the world in English-speaking countries. I got my copy in the Philippines. So there you have it. You gotta love this. This is the Catholic. The Catholics invented the Trinity. They love the Trinity. The Trinity is everywhere in a Catholic Mass. If you ever been, mm. right? And yet they translate it. There's the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, God who is over all. Be blessed forever. Amen. It's the Catholics doing that. Okay. Are, these people are not Unitarian. <laughs> Just in case you weren't. And then look over here. Some editors punctuate this verse differently and prefer the translation of whom is Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all. However. Paul's point is that God, who is overall, aimed to use Israel, which has been entrusted with every privilege in outreach to the entire world through the Messiah. And so you've got to be taken aback a little bit by that because, I mean, that is, that is pretty impressive considering that these people are believers in the Trinity and they're, yet they're saying this verse, yeah, but not this verse, right? So they're not saying the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity, but they're like, but not this verse. And if you get enough, uh, collect enough of those together, it's, it's a pretty impressive overall effect. All right, next one. Titus 2.13, 2 Peter 1.1, 2 Thessalonians 1.12. Basically, it's all the same thing. It's a, a particular con Greek construction where you have two nouns and then the word and between them. And you can translate them two different ways. Titus 2.13, NASB, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Does that feel a little awkward? Then the uh, other New American Bible, not New American Standard, but the New American Bible, as we await the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Daniel, could you read that Francis Young comment there? It is sometimes said that he, Jesus, is called God in Romans 9.5, Thessalonians 1.12, and Titus 2.13, but it is more likely that the first is pious ejaculation. Right, so Paul's like overwhelmed by God's oh, dealing, saying, yeah. so he... I was going to make a comment, like uh, the Jewish people today say Baruch Hashem, meaning like praise God or bless, Ble bless God. the name. Right. Yeah. Literally, yeah. Um, and sometimes I'm thinking... Muslims do it too, peace be yeah, upon them. Right, right. I, sometimes I think, and, and there I think is an example, Paul is so excited... Yeah. That he's just like, he's like, God be blessed forever and ever. Yeah. You know, he just yeah. got it because excited. He, he and loves what he just wrote. Yeah, you call, we call that a Pentecostal moment. There you go. <laughs> he's saying that this is unconnected with the syntax of the sentence. That in the second and third, um, the Greek is rather loose and in fact refers in the former to the grace of God plus the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which we haven't looked at yet. Right. But, and then the one we're looking at, what does he say? To the glory of our great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Right. And so this is somebody who, you know, is, is recognizing this difference. Jason David Badoon, whose book you should all have. Anyhow, Jason David Badoon's book is one of the best books on translation bias that's out there. And Jason David Badoon, just, so just so you know, he's a scholar. He was trained uh, at a number of colleges. He has a, a PhD. He's, he's a professor. He's a, but uh, he wrote, he wrote this, uh, this truth and translation book for like his mom and her friends or like just like some like Bible ladies and they like didn't really know about textual criticism. And he's like, let me show you how the whole thing works. And he just goes through all these different verses that he considers to be indications of where the translator's bias affected what they translated. And ironically... The majority of the texts relate to this subject tonight. Hmm. Was it written in such a way for 
the moms and old ladies. Yeah, it's easy don't. to read. It's it's fairly dry. Uh, uh, maybe. Uh, the spirit chapter is really dry. Uh, spirit writ large. Dry, but not some of it's difficult. But anyhow, this is what he says about Titus 2.13. Katie Beth, can you read this? Those who defend translations that read as if only Jesus has spoken of both Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1. Well, hold on. Let me, let's pause right there because these three really go together. Look at the other side of the page. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, versus the other translation there, the righteousness of our God, and the Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the uh, Thessalonians 1, same kind of thing. The grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. One translation, and then another translation, the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And translators are not all that consistent in how they render these. You know, one that NEB is one way, one's the other way, and one NET is one way, one's the other way. So anyhow, Jason David Badoon explains what's going on here with all three of these passages, really. Go ahead, Katie. You may start over again. Go ahead, yeah, whatever you want to do. It's a free country. (laughs) (laughs) Those who defend translations that read as if only Jesus is spoken of in both Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1 attempt to distinguish those two passages from the parallel examples I have given by something called Sharp's Rule. In 1798, the amateur theologian Granville Sharp published a book in which he argued that when there are two nouns of the same form, case, joined by and, only the first of which has the article, the nouns are identified as the same thing. Close examination of this much-used rule shows it to be a fiction concoded, concocted, made up, by a man who had a theological agenda in creating it, namely to prove that the verses were examining in this chapter called Jesus. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what we call a circular argument. Okay, so here is Granville Sharp. Granville Sharp is reading the Bible and he's like, well, I already believe Jesus is God. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say that this verse means that Jesus is God. And then uh, develop this rule. So he comes up with this rule. And then 200 years later, other people are like, oh, the Granville Sharp rule, that applies to this passage right here. And it proves that Jesus is God. And it just goes around and around. That's a terrible illustration there. But you see what I'm saying, right? Like you start with a belief and then it proves the same belief you started with. That's a circular argument. Circular arguments, by definition, are completely meaningless. They, they prove nothing, right? I'll give you another circular argument a lot of people use. They say, I believe God inspired the Bible. And then you say, well, how do you know that? You say, well, because the Bible says God inspired it. So that's a circular argument. You believe it's inspired because God said it's inspired, but how do you know God says it's inspired the Bible itself told you? So you're just going around and around. That's, that's a bad argument. It might be true or it might be false, but it's just a bad argument for whatever that is. So uh, that's what's going on here. And then he goes on to say, we have no sure way to judge which translations correctly understand the verse and which ones do not. But with the long overdue dismissal of the phantom of Sharp's rule, The position of those who insist God and Savior must refer to the same being in this verse is decidedly weakened. Uh, 
There is no legitimate way to distinguish the grammar of Titus 2.13 from Titus 1.4 and 2 Thessalonians 1.12, just as there is no way to consider 2 Peter 1.1 different in its grammar from 2 Peter 1.2. This is a case where grammar alone will not settle the matter. All we can do is suggest, by analysis of context and comparable passages, that the more likely and less likely translations and leave the question open for further light. So that, and that's the way translation issues go. If it's, a trans, if it's a genuine translation issue, the issue is it could be translated different ways. That's by definition, that's what a translation issue is, okay? Now, how do you figure out which way it should go? Well, a lot of it depends on your theology. And your theology, if you're a translator, is what we call bias, <laughs> okay? So, and everybody has bias. You can't escape from bias. You have your bias, you're gonna see it, you're gonna wanna see it one way, so you're gonna read it that way, and then somebody else has a different bias, they're gonna see it a different way. But just so long as we recognize that bias is going on, this way we're not confusing bias with like the authority of God, yeah. right? Because those are two different things. So, uh, so recognizing that the bias is there, and the translation problem. Yeah, for all of these that are on the screen here, the, the uh, solution is to look at other translations. Because okay. it's a translation issue. So you're going to see it one way in one and another way in another. Would it be fair to say that these are not good verses to use on either side of, an, of a debate? For, yeah, for this debate, yeah. Like all right, so then you have Second Peter 1.1. I've got a little write-up on there on page 13 from Patrick Navis. He is on our side on this issue, just uh, for full disclosure. Great guy. But we're not going to get into that. All right, so let's cover just a smattering, since uh, we used that word a minute ago. Let's look at some interpretation, interpretational uh, issues. Okay, so we got John 5.18. That's a fun one. 1 John 5.20 and John... 10.30, Matthew 1.23, and Colossians 2.9. There are other verses that could you, could you could cover under this, but these are the ones that I'm going to focus on for right now. All right, so John 5.18, this is a fun one. This is not a manuscript issue. All the manuscripts are solid. This is not a translation issue. It doesn't matter what translation you're going to read this in. This is an interpretation issue. So John 5.18 says... Whose turn is it? And this is why the Jews were thinking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so this verse, if you take it at face value, the Jews are saying that Jesus is making himself equal with God. That's what it says. There's no question about that. It's kind of like... Right. Two facts must be considered. First, you do not want to take your doctrine from the people that were skeptical of Jesus, the people that were Jesus' enemies. You don't want to take your doctrine from these people. These people are hard-hearted and unbelieving. What they think, especially in the Gospel of John, is generally wrong. Generally, they misunderstand Jesus. Generally, they're confused. And generally, they don't like Jesus. When a, a Bible-believing Christian comes along and cites John 5.18 to prove that the Bible teaches that Jesus is equal with God, that's just dirty. You know what I mean? That's, either they don't know what they're doing, 
because they didn't read the verses before and after it, or they're being dishonest. Either way. Uh, number two, the very next verse shows how Jesus related to the Father. The very next verse, Jesus says, I can't do anything on my own. Does that not sound like a rebuttal? So they're saying you are claiming that you're equal with God. Jesus comes back, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. I don't think this is really a difficult text, but there you have it. If, you, if somebody brings up John 5.18 to you, what do you do? You read 5.19. Problem solved. All right, let's do uh, the next like super easy one, John 10.30, and then we'll come back to 1 John 5.20, which is an honest, more of an honest issue. John 10.30. I cannot tell you how many times in books I've seen somebody quote this verse, and that person who quotes it is so smart in so many ways. And then they quote this verse and they say, see, Jesus claimed to be God. And I'm just like, you forgot to read the two verses before it. Take, take a look at this. So, yeah, I and the Father are one. You can see how if you just had that verse by itself, if this was in a uh, philosophy textbook and it said, I and the Father are one, you'd be like, oh, okay, this is some sort of unity. Is it ontological unity? Is it metaphysical unity? You get all technical, right? That's not what's going on here. John 10, if you, aren't, if you don't remember, is the Good Shepherd chapter of the Bible. First, it starts out with him saying, I am the door, and then he says, I am the Good Shepherd. This is John 10. So Jesus is looking at himself as a shepherd and his people as sheep. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Think about it. He's a shepherd. A shepherd protects the sheep. A bad guy comes. A thief comes, a wolf comes, the shepherd fights him off, he protects the sheep. Jesus says, they will never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 29, my father, who has given them to me, inherent superiority, is greater than all, explicit superiority, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. He's not saying that he is God. He's saying that they're one. They're unified in purpose of caring for the sheep. Verse 28, Jesus cares for the sheep. Nobody snatches them out of his hand. Verse 29, my father, who's greater than all, by the way, is caring for the sheep. Is no one's going to snatch them out of my father's hand. And then I and the father are one. I usually use John 17, 21 when reading this verse. Uh, Ex excellent. Yeah, let's what, go ahead and read that out for us. It's Jesus praying to the Father on behalf of his disciples, and he says that they all may be one as you, Father, and I are in you, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So literally, Jesus saying, I want them to be one in the same way that you and I are one. So we're not literally, I mean, by if A equals B and B equals C, we would be God. And if that's, if being consistent. Right, right, if being one, with God makes you God, then we are God too, yeah. which is obviously false. Therefore, being one with God is not the same as being God. Right. right. Very good. Uh, let's, let's back up and take in 1 John 5.20. Page 14 here. Josiah, maybe you could read through this sure. right here. The final sentence of verse 20 runs, He is the true God and eternal life. To whom does he refer? Grammatically speaking, it would naturally refer to the nearest preceding subject, namely his son, Jesus Christ. If so, this would be the most unequivocal statement of the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That's quite a statement, huh? Yeah, yeah. 
saying that this would be the strongest supporting text if that was the case. Uh, but it is not, as he's going to go on to explain, I assume. In, indeed, indeed. Or else why would I quote him? <laughs> <laughs> which the champions of orthodoxy were quick to exploit against the heresy of Arius. Luther and Calvin adopted this view. Certainly it is by no means an impossible interpretation. Nevertheless, a more natural reference, as mm. Westcott said, is to him who is true. In this way, the three reference to the true are to the same person, the Father, and the additional points made in the apparent final repetition are that it is the one, namely the God made known by Jesus Christ, who is both the true God and eternal life, as he is both light and love, so he is also life, himself the one source of life and the giver of life in Jesus Christ. The whole verse is strongly reminiscent of John 17.3, um, which if you guys aren't familiar, this is the this is eternal life, that only knew you, the only true God. Um, for there, as here eternal life, is defined in the terms of knowing God, both Father and Son. Oh, so he's, he still believes the Son is God there. Yeah, he's there, right in the end there, you know. Well, you know, that's, that's John, John Stott. I mean, he's, he, well, he, I think he's deceased now, but he was a very, very well-known evangelical in England. And uh, he believe in conditional immortality, but he also did believe in the Trinity. But he's saying this verse is not the one to go to to prove it. That uh, he is the true God in eternal life, or this is the true God in eternal life, that refers back to him who is true. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, understanding what? Of God. So that we may know him who is true, God, and we are in him who is true, God, in his son, Jesus Christ. He, God, is the true God and eternal life. So you can roll with it like that, or you can roll with it in the sense that his son, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. Although that would be kind of ironic with verse 21 on the heels of it. Keep yourself from idols. He's like concerned about polytheism in the next breath. You know, what you do with these kinds of things is you uh, have to work all the other statements about this in to the mix. You have John 17, 3, the clearest verse on the subject of, at least in John, what does he believe about God? You are the only true God. Right, this is eternal life, to know you. See, it's that knowing again, just like in 1 John 5, 20. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So you have eternal life, you have knowing, you have God, the only true God. So it's like, stop saying John 17, 3, first of all, came before 1 John 5. So we already have that as an understanding. Now we're going to read 1 John 5, 20. If Jesus is now the true God in eternal life, it seems like a little weird, you know, to just like switch gears there. So um, you can read it either way. You could read it either way, and it would depend on what your beliefs are going into the equation here. Uh, last two, we'll hold Matthew 1.23 to after the break, because we do need to um, stay on schedule somewhat. Colossians 2.9, then will be our last text. And I don't, I don't think I have a snappy scholarly anything on that. <laughs> I'll just tell you what I think. Uh, Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is talking about Jesus. There's no question about that. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, some people are going to say what this means is that Jesus is deity. Jesus is, deity is just a word for God, godness. 
I guess. Uh, he, Jesus is deity. Can you look up the uh, Greek for that word? Sure. It's, uh, I, I already am familiar with it, but uh, okay. it, it's, a, it's a separate word. It's theotes. That? Which is in the genitive Theotitos. And it means divine nature or deity, or Old English was Godhead. Yeah, I think that's the only occurrence of that yeah. in the New Testament. Hapax Legomenon. Because that's. Which makes it extremely difficult to interpret since there's no other reference. Like they used it this way in another place. Confirmed. One usage in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. Yeah, in, all of the the, in all of the Greek Bible. So, uh, but uh, I don't think it's necessarily that mysterious of a word. It's sort of like Godish. Yeah, which... You know, it's like the adjective, adjectival. So, the uh, BDAG, the Bauer, Danker, Art, Gingrich, Greek lexicon. It's a state of being God, divine character, nature, deity, divinity, used as an abstract noun. And uh, he says that Origen used it in Contra Celsum, Book 7, Chapter 25, Paragraph 9. So we can look that up. I have that book. And it's in Colossians 2. Not, yeah, so there's not much on it here. You're right. Well, anyhow, it, 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 I don't think that anything turns on this. Whether it's just talking about God himself or God's nature itself dwelling within Christ. Because of Ephesians uh, 3.19. And uh, this is a prayer written by Paul also. He says that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Being filled with all the fullness of God is something that we should pray for as well. Christ was filled with all the fullness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.19 is where it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world into himself. So we all realize that God was in Christ. And so in Colossians 2.9 if it says that in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, I think that's talking about God dwelling in Christ. And according to Ephesians 3.19, once again, we are to pray that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. I would never dream to pray that, but Paul says that we should pray that. He says he's praying that for them. So <laughs> there it is. All right, that's enough for right now. That's it for this lecture. Just wanted to point out that I do have the two handouts mentioned in this lecture available in the show notes for this episode at the way bottom under links. I have the story behind the Kama Jahanium as well as my essay, Jesus is God, exploring the notion of representational deity, which includes a number of appendices. The one I use in this episode is Appendix 2, so go check that out if you haven't already. And uh, take a look at the other episodes in this class if you're interested in it. Just wanted to read out a couple of comments we've been getting in before closing out for today. First off, I post on the Divine Council where the Bible Project meets Michael Heiser, both excellent sources of biblical teaching in their own ways, though of course not without flaw. In this episode of the Bible Project, which is a, a YouTube video series, uh, you can watch them explain the spiritual realm, which is really a fascinating topic, and I, I'm not 100% sure I agree with this video, uh, so I just threw it out there to see what everybody else thought. I posted this on April 13th, and I've gotten a number of comments in on it. It's on restitutio.org if you haven't seen it yet. The first is from Rob Bjork, who says, here is a useful evaluation of Dr. Heiser's concepts. In my opinion, the author's other posts are well-written as well, and he 
puts a link to letthetruthcomeoutblog.wordpress.com. So uh, take a look at that if you're interested in an evaluation. Ray Scott says, The Lord's Prayer, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heiser says, A divine counsel in heaven rebels against God's will, hence partially to blame for evil on earth. But did not Jesus' prayer say God's will will be done? God's will is done in heaven? So I go with Jesus' understanding instead of Heiser's. Thanks to Rob York for pointing out the blog, a good read. Uh, Miranda also comments, there's a lot of stuff going on in heaven that we don't know about. We do know, however, that there were bad angels, Genesis 6-4, and there is yet to be a war in heaven, Revelation 12. And then she quotes, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying for God's will to be done, and we are praying for God's will to be done in heaven and on earth. My instinct is to say that the rebellious angelic beings are in the lower realm of heaven, what we would call the sky, uh, such as the phrases such as the prince of the power of the air come to mind here, where uh, heaven proper is the abode of God and the non-rebelling angels, but the uh, lower realms of the earth and the, uh, the air just above the earth, what we call the atmosphere, would be the context of uh, rebellious spirits. So uh, I think that would be a way to resolve this issue where God's will is done in the in heaven proper, but uh, in the uh, lower realms, it's not being done. So maybe that'll help. Uh, I do intend to take a look at this link that Rob put down here to see what the criticism is of Heiser's. I mean, even if Heiser's wrong about uh, a number of different things here, he does have some excellent points when it comes to what he calls the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Uh, so take a look at that. Uh, if you do look into Heiser, he's got a little video on his homepage that I thought I thought was pretty helpful. And he also has a book on the spiritual realms as well, if you're interested in Heiser. Additionally, on our last episode, Theology Part 10, Jesus the Messiah, David Bagwell says, I'd like to participate in your Facebook discussions, but I abhor the Facebook cultural phenomenon. Is there any other way? Well, David, as far as we have it right now, it's just the Facebook group where you can post your own topic and get feedback. Just had a post last night from Kenny Wellenberg. Thanks, Kenny, for doing that and uh, bouncing some ideas around about the balance between love and truth. You know, we don't want to get so truth-heavy that we become Pharisees, always judging each other and criticizing one another. And we don't want to just become a bunch of hippies that fall into sin because all we care about is love. So uh, we do need to have a balance between those. Check that out if you haven't already, the Restitudio Facebook group, which is pretty new. And it's a, it's a place where you can really have your voice heard and bounce ideas off others and see what people think. Just before closing out here, I wanted to mention that I did have a great weekend last weekend at the Theological Conference, or as I call it, Theocon 2019. And I was able to get a good recording of my presentation there on the Trinity before Nicaea. So that I will be posting tomorrow morning, the full edited video with the slides all put in there. And uh, would love for for you to take a look at that yourself to see if Christians believed in the Trinity before Nicaea, as well as to share that on uh, social media and with your friends, especially those who do believe in the Trinity. I tried to angle this presentation in such a way that it wouldn't offend anyone uh, coming from a Trinitarian perspective, 
but would be easy for them to listen to, at least until the end when I somewhat come out of the closet as uh, saying that there wasn't a trinity before 325, at least not that I can find in the historical literature. So please share that. Let, let's get that word out. I mean, I think it's just such a powerful point. Look, if nobody, think about this, if nobody believed in the Trinity before 325, how can we say that for 300 years, not one single Christian was able to see the doctrine in Scripture? How can we then say that Scripture clearly teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, or that the Trinity theory clearly is the best explanation of what the Bible teaches if nobody got it? I mean, what kind of a communicator is God if it takes three centuries for people to start to get the core message of the Bible? Come on. Uh, That's just unbelievable. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.